Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our May-June 2018 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and major depressive disorder are the two most common psychiatric disorders resulting from exposure to a severe traumatic experience. Individuals with comorbid PTSD and depression have been shown to be at increased risk for suicide, to have substantial functional impairment, and to have higher levels of treatment resistance than with either disorder alone. Standard treatments for both these disorders include antidepressant pharmacotherapy such as serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Unfortunately, these medications have been shown to be ineffective for a substantial portion of the population with either of these disorders, let alone for individuals with the more severe comorbid presentation. Recently, single infusions of ketamine have shown promise for the rapid reduction of depression or PTSD symptoms. In this Veterans Affairs-supported study, the authors present the first open-label trial showing that repeated ketamine infusions are effective for the treatment of comorbid PTSD and treatment-resistant depression in a veteran population. The period of benefit for both PTSD and depression symptoms was greater than that observed in single-infusion studies. Repeated ketamine infusions were shown to be safe and well-tolerated by all participants in the study. While the results of this study demonstrate promise for repeated infusions being an effective, durable, and safe treatment for a high-risk population that has historically been difficult to treat, the study was limited by a lack of placebo control. As such, the authors cautioned that these results merit replication in a larger randomized control trial. Treatment with antipsychotic drugs in patients with Alzheimer's disease has been shown to increase mortality. In the current study, researchers in Denmark investigated time trends in mortality rates between patients with Alzheimer's disease and the general population. With support from Danish institutions, the authors of this nationwide retrospective cohort study examined data from the Danish National Healthcare Registers, including 32,001 patients. During the study period, the authors observed an increasing trend in median survival time, but no decline in standardized mortality rates. These rates span from 1.19 in 2001 to 1.52 in 2011. The study showed a decline in proportion of incident Alzheimer's disease patients exposed to antipsychotic drugs, as well as a decline in mean annual cumulative antipsychotic drug exposure. In the adjusted Cox regression analyses, the authors found that current exposure to antipsychotic drugs was associated with an increased mortality, although hazard ratios declined during the study period from 2.24 in 2000 through 2002 to 1.24 from 2009 through 2011. The authors conclude that these findings underscore the current guideline recommendations for 
prescribing antipsychotic drugs only at the lowest effective dose and only when all non-pharmacologic options are exhausted. Furthermore, these results suggest that the reduced use of antipsychotic drugs has no impact on relative mortality. This lack of effect may indicate that the Alzheimer's disease population has not gained much from treatment advances for diseases that impact both their mortality rates and that of the overall population. Given the high rates of overdose in young people, understanding the risk factors for overdose in youth who have substance use disorders is critical. Researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital conducted a review of 200 medical records with two objectives, to determine how common overdoses were in youth presenting for substance use disorder care and to identify substance use and psychiatric characteristics associated with overdose. Records for substance use disorder outpatients aged 16 to 26 years were included. At initial intake, 29% of patients reported having a history of an overdose. Of these patients, 62% had a history of unintentional overdose only as opposed to overdose linked to a suicide attempt. Youth with more lifetime substance use disorders and more severe psychiatric illness were at increased risk for overdose. Alcohol, cocaine, and amphetamine use disorders were associated with overdose. No association with opioid or benzodiazepine use disorders was found. The authors recommend that, in addition to assessing for opioids and benzodiazepines, clinicians who work with youth should assess for other substances that are associated with overdose. They also stress the importance of assessing for psychiatric risk factors when determining overdose risk. Most patients with schizophrenia have poor insight into their illness. Lack of insight is associated with poor functioning, poor treatment adherence, and a higher frequency of readmissions, which are often involuntary. Interventions aimed at increasing awareness of illness may accordingly lead to a better outcome. However, the insight paradox in schizophrenia is the fact that better insight may be associated with increased suicide risk. Understanding the relationship between insight and suicide is therefore important. Moreover, people with schizophrenia are more prone to depression, and there is a strong link between depression and suicidality. Depression also impacts the quality of life, and quality of life is associated with the level of insight and increased suicidality in schizophrenia. The authors of the present study sought to ascertain whether quality of life and depression mediated the association between insight and suicidality. They used a statistical approach known as structural equation modeling with the data from 527 people with schizophrenia who had been evaluated throughout 10 centers of expertise in France set up by the Fundamental Foundation and funded by the French state. The authors found that insight appears to be an indirect risk factor for suicide in patients with schizophrenia. The link is fully mediated by poor quality of life and worse underlying depression. They then conclude that interventions aiming at insight improvement in schizophrenia should focus on quality of life and depressive symptoms to prevent suicide.
In older adults, executive function impairment often coexists with depression and may impact antidepressant treatment outcomes. Although some studies have indicated an association between executive function deficits and poor response to antidepressants, other studies associate this outcome with deficits in a wider range of cognitive functions. Moreover, the impact of executive impairment on completion of antidepressant treatment remains unclear. In this study, sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers examined the impact of executive function on depression remission and treatment non-completion in older adults in a major depressive episode who received open-label venlafaxine treatment. They examined baseline executive function, including response inhibition, set shifting and initiation, and set maintenance. They also studied broader cognitive functions at baseline, including attention, immediate memory, delayed memory, visuospatial ability, and global cognition. The effects of comorbid medical burden, reported side effects, and adherence to the antidepressant on treatment non-completion were also analyzed. Of the 468 patients evaluated, 20% did not complete the 12-week treatment trial, 41% completed and remitted, and 39% completed and did not remit. Executive function measures of set shifting and initiation and set maintenance, as well as certain broader cognitive function measures, were associated with treatment non-completion. None of the executive or non-executive measures was associated with remission. Independent predictors of treatment non-completion were somatic fluency, comorbid medical burden, and early non-adherence to the antidepressant. Based on these results, the authors conclude that executive functions of initiation and set maintenance may allow depressed older adults to engage and stay in treatment. Increasing evidence suggests a positive association between attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, and obesity, one of the major risk factors of type 2 diabetes mellitus. However, the specifics of association between ADHD and type 2 diabetes mellitus remain unknown. In this study, which was supported by grants from Taipei Veterans General Hospital, the authors analyzed data from the Taiwan National Health Insurance Database on nearly 36,000 adolescents and young adults with ADHD. These individuals were compared with about 72,000 age and sex-matched controls to investigate the risk of type 2 diabetes mellitus. Findings indicate that adolescents and young adults with ADHD were more likely to develop type 2 diabetes mellitus later in life. In addition, those with ADHD who were receiving atypical antipsychotics exhibited the highest risk. The use of ADHD medications was not related to the risk of developing diabetes. The authors conclude that in clinical practice, type 2 diabetes mellitus should be considered in patients with ADHD even in the absence of other known risk factors. They suggest that the use of atypical antipsychotics in individuals with ADHD should be thoroughly evaluated for its benefits and risks. According to the cytokine hypothesis of depression, Inflammation may play an important part in the underpinnings of the illness. 
Despite interest in the association between pro-inflammatory cytokines and depression, anti-inflammatory markers have rarely been investigated as predictors of depression risk. As adiponectin is the most abundant of the human adipoise tissue-derived anti-inflammatory adipokines, researchers in Korea sought to determine whether upregulation of plasma adiponectin precedes the development of depression in the elderly. In their government-funded prospective study, the authors randomly sampled participants from a community-dwelling elderly Korean cohort aged 65 years or older. Euthymic individuals without a history of depression were enrolled for an evaluation and a follow-up after five years. At the baseline evaluation, the mean age was older, the male-to-female ratio was lower, and body mass index and mini-mental status examination scores were lower in the high-plasma adiponectin group than in the middle or lower groups. An analysis adjusting for age, gender, body mass index, mini-mental status examination score, and burden of chronic illnesses revealed an approximately 11 times higher risk of incident depression in the high adiponectin group compared to the lower group. From these results, the authors conclude that the upregulation of plasma adiponectin may precede the onset of clinically significant depression in the elderly. And therefore, plasma adiponectin level is a potential candidate marker for the risk of depression. Bipolar disorder is a complex psychiatric condition that affects the mood, thinking, behavior, and relationships of the sufferer. Although a wide range of medications are available to treat the disorder, each has its limitations. Psychosocial interventions, such as psychoeducation, have therefore been studied to augment existing treatments. Sue and colleagues conducted a systematic review to synthesize the data from randomized controlled trials regarding the effectiveness of individual, group, family, and internet psychoeducation in bipolar disorder. Of the 40 studies they reviewed, 28 involved group or family psychoeducation, and the majority of these studies reported benefits following the intervention. In contrast, there were only eight studies of individual psychoeducation and four studies of internet psychoeducation. These had either inconsistent or negative findings. Overall, patients undergoing group psychoeducation had reduced illness recurrences, decreased number and duration of hospitalizations, increased time to illness relapse, and better medication adherence. They also experienced reduced stigma of their illness. Patients who underwent family psychoeducation experienced fewer illness recurrences and hospitalizations. Their family members reported better caregiver knowledge and reduced caregiver burden. The authors encourage future efforts to compare different psychoeducation modalities, including combination types such as individual plus family psychoeducation in the context of holistic care of bipolar disorder patients. Most patients with schizophrenia are treated in the community. However, physicians are often unaware of the proportion of patients who discontinue their medication regimens or are antipsychotic naive, whether in urban or rural areas. 
In this study, sponsored by the Guangdong Provincial Department of Science and Technology, the authors examined data from the Chinese National Psychiatric Management System on 1,365 community-dwelling patients with schizophrenia, diagnosed according to DSM-IV or ICD-10 criteria. The data were collected by interviews from 2013 to 2014 and from 2015 to 2016. The researchers found that 27.3% of patients with schizophrenia living in the community were antipsychotic-free. The proportion of patients with antipsychotic-free status was 35.4% in the rural area and only 17.5% in the urban area a statistically significant difference. Researchers also found that older age and poor medication treatment attitude were common features of antipsychotic-free patients in both urban and rural areas. Based on these findings, the authors conclude that building a positive medication treatment attitude is an important strategy for establishing medication adherence in older community-dwelling patients with schizophrenia. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. The rate of non-response to antidepressants after the first weeks of acute phase treatment is high, but how long clinicians should wait for response before changing treatment is unclear. To answer this question, clinicians conducted a meta-analysis in which they reviewed and summarized all double-blind placebo-controlled trials on acute phase antidepressant treatment that reported outcomes consistently from 4 weeks to at least 12 weeks. From over 6,000 studies reviewed, 9 studies comprising 3,466 patients met inclusion criteria. The primary outcome was response defined as a decrease of at least 50% in depression rating scale scores. Only two of the nine studies reported results for up to 24 weeks. When treatment was prolonged after four weeks of non-response, 22% of patients achieved response between weeks 5 and 8. After eight weeks of non-response, only 10% of patients became responders from week 9 to week 12. In other words, between weeks 5 and 8, 11 previous non-responders must keep taking antidepressant monotherapy in order for one to achieve response. After non-response to 8 weeks of monotherapy, the number needed to treat amounts to 17 for treatment up to week 12. The authors contend that clinicians can inform their patients that improvement in symptoms can be expected even up to three months of antidepressant monotherapy. After eight weeks of non-response, however, patients will be unlikely to benefit from further prolonging the same treatment. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder characterized by progressive nigrostriatal dopamine depletion causing abnormalities in movement, behavior, cognition, and emotion. Since 2003, dopaminergic medications, particularly dopamine agonists, have been associated with the development of impulse control disorders, or ICDs, and related behaviors in patients with Parkinson's disease. Anecdotal evidence has suggested that these secondary disorders are associated with younger age and male sex. 
but little information exists regarding their actual prevalence and consequences in the elderly. In this study, the authors estimated the prevalence of ICDs in a sample of elderly Parkinson's disease patients compared with a group of age and sex-matched healthy controls. They sought to identify the sociodemographic and clinical factors associated with ICDs in elderly Parkinson's disease patients. Their findings confirmed a high prevalence of ICD symptoms in the elderly patients with Parkinson's disease, approximately twice that seen in the general population and with a confirmed association with male sex and depressive symptoms. Although the prevalence of ICDs among elderly Parkinson's disease patients was significantly higher than in the general elderly population, the distribution and associated factors were similar to those in the younger population. These results confirmed the hypothesis that ICDs in elderly subjects need close surveillance, at least equal to that used for younger patients, and that depressive symptoms should be seen as related to ICDs. Early discontinuation of antidepressant medications is common and is an important cause of poor depression outcomes. Conventional wisdom holds that treatment adherence depends on the skills of the individual physician, including the ability to educate the patient and develop a therapeutic relationship. However, most previous research in this area has not included large enough samples to examine whether the likelihood of stopping or continuing antidepressant medication differs meaningfully among physicians. To address that question, Simon and colleagues, with support from the National Institute of Mental Health, analyzed data from electronic health records and insurance claims, including approximately 150,000 patients in both psychiatry and primary care settings. The answers they found undermine conventional wisdom. After accounting for random variation due to small numbers of patients for any individual physician, the difference between best and worst performing physicians was only 5 to 6% in the likelihood that a patient would refill an initial antidepressant prescription. The authors conclude that early discontinuation of antidepressants is not an appropriate measure of individual physician performance. Further, they argue, efforts to improve antidepressant adherence should focus not on the skills or behaviors of low-performing physicians, but rather on system-level interventions. Tardive dyskinesia is a persistent and often debilitating movement disorder associated with prolonged exposure to dopamine receptor-blocking agents such as antipsychotics. Prevention, close monitoring, and early diagnosis of tardive dyskinesia are critical in optimizing patient outcomes. The Abnormal Involuntary Movement Scale, or AIMS, has been used to evaluate tardive dyskinesia in both research and clinical settings. In October 2016, with support from Neurocrine Biosciences, a tardive dyskinesia assessment working group met to discuss the AIMS as an assessment tool the challenges of translating clinical trial results into clinical practice, and different approaches to analyzing and interpreting AIMS data. In this issue, an article by Kane and colleagues reports on the discussions that took place at the workshop and presents consensus statements intended to provide guidance for assessing tardive dyskinesia in clinical settings and for interpreting clinical trial results. 
This article also discusses different types of AIMS analyses that may be clinically relevant, including effect size, minimal clinically important difference, and treatment response. It is the hope of the authors that this article will serve as a foundation for more discussions and research regarding the screening, diagnosis, and treatment of tardive dyskinesia. This article is freely available online. Please visit the May-June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Cigarette smoking has declined in the United States overall, but it remains the leading cause of chronic disease and premature mortality. Identifying modifiable barriers to quitting could have a large and sustained impact on tobacco control policy. Illicit drug use could be one such barrier, as illicit drug use is linked to increased risk of onset, persistence, and relapse of cigarette use. In our CME offering for this month, researchers conducted a study of data from the Large U.S. National Survey on Drug Use and Health to investigate the relationship between illicit drug use and cigarette smoking from 2002 to 2014. They sought to estimate changes in the prevalence of illicit drug use among current cigarette smokers, former smokers, and those who had never smoked. The researchers found that past-month illicit drug use was much more common in current smokers relative to former smokers and people who never smoked. All three groups showed an increase in illicit drug use, however. The greatest increase was among former smokers, and this was largely due to increases in the use of cannabis. Although current smokers are more likely to use drugs overall, former smokers appear to be experiencing the most rapid acceleration in illicit drug use over time. The authors stressed the importance of monitoring both current and former smokers for potential increases in illicit drug use in the future. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the May-June table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Childhood maltreatment and adversity has been linked to worse mental and physical health in the general population. But what role does resilience play in determining its eventual impact? In a cross-sectional study supported by the National Institute of Health, researchers at the University of California, San Diego, studied 114 people with schizophrenia. They found that resilience was associated with significantly better mental and physical health outcomes, regardless of their history of childhood adversity. In particular, resilience was associated with improved levels of glycosylated hemoglobin and measures of insulin resistance. In general, persons with schizophrenia had worse mental and physical health and higher prevalence of childhood adversity. Yet persons with schizophrenia who had high levels of childhood trauma and high resilience had comparable or better mental and physical health outcomes as non-psychiatric comparison participants with high levels of childhood adversity and low levels of resilience. The authors conclude that interventions to bolster resilience in the general population and in people with schizophrenia may improve outcomes for those with a history of childhood adversity. Repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS, is an evidence-based therapy that has efficacy in treatment-resistant major depression and may be more acceptable to many patients than electroconvulsive therapy. 
A recent study from the University of Toronto took a second look at some previous work that examined the effects of RTMS in a group of patients with treatment-resistant depression. In the current analysis, the researchers focused on the effects of RTMS on levels of suicidal ideation. The researchers found that bilateral RTMS, in which both sides of the brain are treated with coils, may be an effective treatment for depressed patients with suicidal ideation. Significantly, more patients receiving this treatment had their suicidal ideation fully resolved compared to patients treated with sham or placebo RTMS. It should be noted that the results from this study are preliminary. The researchers hope to replicate their findings in future studies and then see if this form of RTMS could be used to treat suicidality across different psychiatric disorders. While many risk factors have been identified for osteoporosis, it is still unclear whether major depressive disorder is a definitive one. Although current evidence suggests association between major depressive disorder and lower bone density, differences between studies in sample composition and design prevent firm conclusions. To investigate this association, the authors of the present study, with funding from the National Institute of Health, examined the relationship between depression and bone density in the Dallas Heart Study, a population-based sample of Dallas County, Texas. Their multiple linear regression model took into consideration covariants that are known to influence bone density, including age, body mass index, sex, ethnicity, smoking status, alcohol use status, vitamin D levels, antidepressant use, and physical activity. In this analysis, depressive symptom severity, as measured by the 16-item Quick Inventory of Depressive Symptomatology self-report, did not significantly predict bone density in the overall sample. There was, however, a significant association observed between depressive symptoms and bone density in participants older than 60 years. In view of these results, the authors suggest that diagnosis and treatment of depressive symptoms may be of clinical importance in older individuals, a subgroup at high risk for osteoporosis and fractures. Most patients with borderline personality disorder are not informed by their providers that they have this diagnosis and are not provided up-to-date information about the disorder and its treatment. In contrast, patient education is often considered an integral part of treatment for conditions like depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, and research indicates that patients benefit from receiving this kind of information. In a study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers sought to address this discrepancy by evaluating the efficacy of an Internet-based psychoeducation program for women who were newly diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. In this study, participants who met full DSM-4 criteria for borderline personality disorder were randomly assigned either to the psychoeducation treatment group or to the control group that received no psychoeducation. All participants, regardless of treatment condition, entered the acute phase in which they completed web-based assessments every week for 12 weeks and then entered the maintenance phase in which they were assessed 6, 9, and 12 months after study entry. Those assigned to the psychoeducation program also reviewed an online curriculum about borderline personality disorder. 
Results from the first 12 weeks of the study show that participants who completed the curriculum exhibited greater gains in impulsivity and overall functioning when compared to participants who did not complete the curriculum. Similarly, those who completed the program showed greater gains in all major domains of borderline symptoms and overall symptom severity when compared with the control group over the course of a year. Taken together, these results suggest that Internet-based psychoeducation is an effective and cost-efficient form of early treatment for reducing the symptom severity of borderline personality disorder for periods of up to one year. After remission of an anxiety disorder, subjects often experience persistent functional impairments. These impairments in mental and physical functioning may be seen as a continuation of premorbid lower functioning, which is called a trait effect. However, the impairments may develop during the anxiety disorder and persist beyond recovery, a phenomenon known as a scar effect. In this study, data were derived from the Netherlands Mental Health Survey and Incident Study 2, a prospective psychiatric epidemiologic study among the general population with a three-wave design and six years of follow-up in the period between 2007 and 2015. Trade effects were evaluated using between-subject comparisons, and scar effects were evaluated using within-subjects comparisons. The authors found that compared to healthy controls, individuals who had an anxiety disorder experienced levels of mental and physical functioning that were already significantly impaired prior to the onset of the disorder, indicating a trait effect. In those who developed an anxiety disorder that remitted within the follow-up period, functioning after remission was similar to functioning before onset of the anxiety disorder thereby indicating that a scar effect was absent. However, a trend toward mental scarring was found in the subgroup with a recurrent anxiety disorder. The authors conclude that persistent functional limitations following remission of an anxiety disorder largely reflect a pre-existing trait effect. Since functional impairments are associated with relapse, investing in optimizing levels of functioning, besides symptom reduction, seems worthwhile and may be especially beneficial for those with recurrent anxiety disorders. Antidepressants are commonly prescribed for bipolar disorder. However, their use is controversial due to the concern that they may cause manic symptoms, a phenomenon known as antidepressant-induced mania, or AIM. Yet, depression occurs frequently in bipolar disorder and is therefore important to know which bipolar disorder patients might be more likely to experience AIM in response to antidepressants. In this retrospective study, sponsored by the Prechter Bipolar Research Fund, the authors asked two questions. Which bipolar disorder patients receive antidepressants? And in those patients, which factors are associated with the history of AIM? Logistic regression modeling was used to identify demographic and clinical variables associated with these outcomes. Combining subjects with all subtypes of bipolar disorder, the authors found that demographic factors such as female sex and older age were associated with higher risk of antidepressant exposure. 
Additionally, greater lifetime chronicity of disease, that is, more time spent with active bipolar disorder symptoms, was also associated with increased antidepressant exposure risk. A personal history of affective psychosis and greater lifetime number of manic episodes were associated with lower risk of antidepressant exposure. Interestingly, when looking only at subjects exposed to antidepressants, logistic regression modeling showed that of all the variables tested, only female sex was associated with the history of AIM. Although these findings are limited by a relatively small sample size and recall bias, which confounds all retrospective data, the authors conclude that these data may be useful for designing prospective trials aimed at reducing the risk of AIM in bipolar disorder. Families living with autism use the emergency department to manage crises related to a variety of issues. To investigate patterns of emergency department visits among youth with autism spectrum disorder, researchers conducted a systematic review of the literature and identified 12 publications that specifically addressed use of emergency department services in this population. Youth aged 17 years or younger who had autism were up to 30 times more likely to present to the emergency department than those without autism. Additionally, youth with autism who visited the emergency department were older, more likely to have public insurance, and more likely to have non-urgent emergency department visits compared to youth without autism. Up to 13% of the visits were for behavioral or psychiatric problems, whereas for youth without autism, less than 2% were for psychiatric problems. Youth with autism were more likely to present for externalizing problems or psychotic symptoms. They were also more likely to have repeat visits to the emergency department and to be admitted to a psychiatric unit or medical floor. The authors emphasize the need for more research in this area in order to prevent unnecessary emergency department utilization and hospitalization reduce medical costs, and improve outcomes for youth with autism spectrum disorder. Dementia with Lewy bodies is the second most common type of degenerative dementia after Alzheimer's disease. Auditory hallucinations are an important feature of diagnosis of dementia with Lewy bodies, but they have received less attention than visual hallucinations. Researchers from Japan, with funding from the Japanese government, focused on auditory hallucinations in these patients and addressed the following three questions. What percentage of the patients suffer from auditory hallucinations? What do they hear? And what patient characteristics might be related to the development of auditory hallucinations? They recruited 124 patients with probable dementia with Lewy bodies and assessed the presence of auditory hallucinations and other neuropsychiatric symptoms. They also reviewed all available clinical records of the patients with auditory hallucinations. 36% of the patients with dementia with Lewy bodies had auditory hallucinations. Among these patients, over 90% also had visual hallucinations. Auditory hallucinations consisted mostly of human voices, and about 90% of the patients described them as being similar to hearing dialogue in a movie soundtrack. Statistical analysis showed that being female and having hearing loss were significant independent predictors of auditory hallucinations. 
Additionally, auditory hallucinations were associated with the presence of phantom border delusions and depression. Based on their findings, the authors conclude that auditory hallucinations are more likely to occur in patients with dementia with Lewy bodies who are female and who have impaired hearing, depression, delusions, or visual hallucinations. This article is freely available online. Please visit the May-June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Racial and ethnic disparities in mental health care persist in the United States, and they are especially evident in treatment engagement, a multi-step sequence that includes treatment initiation, participation, adherence, and retention. In an effort to overcome these barriers, an intervention called motivational interviewing that focuses on patients' ambivalence about pharmacotherapy has been developed. In this month's ASCP Corner article, the authors take a look at motivational interviewing. This highly collaborative approach is based on four processes, engaging the patient, focusing on the desired behavioral change, evoking change talk, which is a person's own stated reasons for wanting to change, and planning steps to achieve this goal. This article is freely available online. Please visit the May-June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In his most recent installments of his Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade discusses risks associated with sedative hypnotic use in the elderly and risks associated with valparate use during pregnancy. Older age, poor sleep, and the use of the Z-sedative hypnotic drugs commonly go together. In his first column, Dr. Andrade discusses the findings and implications of a recent meta-analysis that focused on the risk of falls and fractures associated with these drugs. In his second column, Dr. Andrade points out that despite a large body of literature documenting poor outcomes after gestational exposure to valparate, it continues to be prescribed to women of childbearing potential. He summarizes the associated risks and discusses recent regulatory responses associated with them. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the May-June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the May-June issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.